and his memorial service will be here at West Houston Bible Church at 1 o'clock p.m. on January the, Saturday, January the 13th. The deacons meeting and the men's prayer breakfast for January will be put off a week to the 20th of January. I think that's the only announcement. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, confess sin if necessary in silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful we have you to come to in time of need, that you are always aware of every situation in our lives. There's nothing that takes you by surprise, nothing that is unexpected, but you desire us to bring our requests before your throne of grace. And so, Father, we're grateful that we can be here tonight. We thank you for all the uh, freedoms that we have. We pray that they would continue and that you would continue to uh, shut down and restrain those various movements in this nation and people who wish to destroy the nation, transform it, and who are in the the deepest parts of their being hateful toward you, and they despise Christianity and your people Israel. So, Father, we pray that they might be restrained. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray that you might continue to Uh, strengthen them in wisdom, in military might, that they might win in this war uh, against Hamas for now and wipe out this particular threat. Father, we also pray for those in Ukraine. We pray for those who are distributing uh, literature uh, throughout all of these various countries and many others related to uh, the promise book that we have and others that are teaching the gospel and the truth about your word, and that that might bring forth a great harvest. So, Father, we pray that tonight as we continue our study, you'll strengthen us and help us in our study, that we might see how this relates to us and and the way in which we think and the way in which we act. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 as we move on, and we are in Philippians 2, 19, looking at Timothy, who is the third example of that Paul is giving for what he is challenging the Philippians to. He has uh, been challenging them because um, they are like most human beings who run their lives according to this in nature. They are self-absorbed. And out of that self-absorption, they are uh, conscious of their own desires, their own wants. Everything is about them rather than about God. And they are not um, serving others. They are not humble. Uh, They do not have any humility, which is necessary in order to learn anything, to grow, to mature, to be a good uh, individual, a good uh, father, a good husband, 
to excel in anything, we need to have humility. And the humility, of course, that we're talking about in this chapter is not a humility that is produced just out of uh, human good. It is produced by the sin nature. Excuse me, it's produced by the Holy Spirit, not by the sin nature. So this is the framework. We have to understand the context of the things that Paul is saying uh, in this particular chapter. So he started off with uh, giving them the guidelines in verses 1 through 4. Then the first example was the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 5 through 11. Then he gave them some further exhortations, concluding with himself as the second example in verses 17 to 18. And then he's getting comes to Timothy in verses 19 uh, to 24 as the uh, third example. So as Paul challenges them and doing all of this, and he gives these examples, I can just hear some people say, well, of course Jesus was humble. He's perfect. Uh, how can we do that? Uh, that's not a very good example. So Paul gave an example of himself, and he was quite arrogant before he was saved as every human being is in some ways, but he was especially and overtly because he's going around arresting, uh, torturing, and murdering Christians. Uh, He was filled with arrogance, and now he gives himself as an example, as we read last time, that he is um, like a drink offering being poured out on the sacrifice and service of the Philippian believers. And so he has moved through those first two examples, and now he's coming to the third example, uh, which is Timothy. The fourth example we'll get to next week, which is Epaphroditus. So this will uh, finish up this second division, or first major section, I guess, in uh, chapter 2. So that is our overview. Last time I started with this verse. Uh, the more I read, the more I study, the more I think this verse is the, this verse and verse 2 are the summations of the Christian life in just two verses. Paul says, I implore you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. And by that he means the whole person, who we are, our, our, our body, soul, and spirit. Everything that we are, present all that we are as a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice. And by sacrifice, he means giving up our personal desires, or as he put it in chapter 2, verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility of mind, let each esteem or consider others better than himself, and that we are not to uh, look out only for our own interests, but for the interests of others. That is what he means by a living sacrifice, that we're living our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not living our lives for our own personal ambitions, our own personal desires, our own personal agenda. So we are to present our lives as a living sacrifice set apart to the service of God. Our focus in life is to serve the Lord. Our focus in life is to glorify the Lord whether that is as an individual or as a husband or wife in a marriage, because the purpose for marriage is not to have companionship. And that is a hard thing for a lot of people, especially uh, if you have been single and you are 
have get getting up into let's say your 30s or 40s and you just really like to have someone to share your life with and there doesn't seem to be anybody and i can't tell you how many men and also how many women i have come to know over the years who have a great desire to serve the lord but the, you know their conclusion is on one side or the other they can't seem to find anyone of the opposite sex that uh is compatible to them in terms of their understanding that their life is to serve the Lord and that if they get married, their marriage is to serve the Lord, that that is, that is the purpose. And it is not to fulfill a desire that's related to uh, just having companionship or uh, dealing with loneliness. It's a great test. It comes in your teens and then 20s, and then it can come again in your uh, senior years when your spouse goes to be with the Lord before you, and then you have a second test. And the issue is if you've never grappled with the fact that the purpose for marriage and your companionship is to serve the Lord together as you are compatible spiritually, then you will really have a struggle when you deal with being alone again, either at the front end of your life or at the other end of your life. So we are to be set apart to the service of God, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And I read a story this last week about a missionary couple. They understood this. They went to India. The husband had a vision for four mountain ranges in India and that they would take the gospel there and they would see God bring in a great harvest of believers. About the time they finished getting the gospel to those tribes on the first range, he died. They were in their 70s. She went on for another 20 years carrying the gospel to those other three ranges until riding her donkey from village to village until she died at 95. That's when you have, see, a couple that understands the mission. Now, that doesn't mean that every couple is going to be working together in that kind of a capacity, but they understand that whatever their different uh, spiritual gifts might be, whatever their different abilities might be, ultimately, as a couple, that's their goal. And as a family, that becomes your goal as well. So that is, that's our service to God. And that is said at the end, it's liturgos in the Greek, which is where we get our word liturgy. Here it says it's reasonable service. It is our personal worship is to serve God in that way. So it, the two key words that we see there are sacrifice and service. It's, service is the uh, form of the noun latreia. Uh, has that same idea. I said liturgos earlier. They come from the same root. And uh, to see, and those same words showed up in Philippians two seventeen and eighteen. Paul talking about his own life um, that he's poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. The sacrifice and the service do not belong to his offering, his giving of the offering. Those two words are connected to the faith of the of the uh, Philippians. So his drink offering is poured out on their, the sacrifice and service that come 
out of their own faith. Now, that's not faith for salvation. That is faith for their spiritual life and their spiritual growth. So that is the what he's talking about here. They have to grow spiritually. So just because you see this word faith doesn't mean it's talking about faith in Christ's work on the cross for eternal life. It can be talking about faith toward God on a day-to-day basis in terms of spiritual life and spiritual growth. So that's the picture in uh, Philippians 2.17 that Paul sees his life as that which enhances their sacrifice. That's what a drink offering would do. You would first have your sin offering, and that dealt with your sin in the Old Testament, followed by a burnt offering, which everything is burned up and consumed by the fire, which is a picture of one's dedication to the Lord. And then the drink offering would be poured on that, and that is uh, would be wine or, in some cases, beer. And that would be poured out, and the alcohol would cause it to flame up, and so it intensifies the burnt offering. He says, uh, he also says at the end of verse 17 and then verse 18, he repeats the phrase, I am glad and rejoice with you all, so you all be glad and rejoice with me. The joy comes as a result of that life of faith that is growing and maturing. This is why some years ago I made the point of of um, putting, when I organize the, the uh, uh, spiritual skills, the ultimate one is experiencing that joy of the Lord. Because Paul calls it, I mean, James calls it counted all joy when you encounter various trials. The whole book of James is about how you can figure out how you can get to the joy part, and that's by being quick to hear. That is quick, focused on learning the word, hearing it, and applying it parallel to um, uh, faith and works. Faith is believing it, and the works are just the application of what you say you believe. And be quick to hear, slow to speak, control the tongue, the sins of the tongue, and slow to anger, controlling mental attitude sins. And learning that is a process when you can face your trials without handling them through sins, and you handle it through the Word of God, and then the result is joy. Well, Paul is saying the same thing here. The result of doing it this way, he says that 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 brings him uh, joy and he's rejoicing and he prays that that will be true for the Philippian believers as well. So then he comes to the next verse. He's giving us the third example, which is Timothy. And in verse 19, he says, but I trust, this is the King James translation or excuse me, new King James translation. Uh, we'll see that trust isn't the best translation. He says, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged uh, when I know uh, your state. So we're going to look at what the Bible teaches about Timothy. Timothy is a name, the Greek is Timotheos. It is a combination of two Greek words, Timios from the noun teme, which means honor or glory, and uh, 
the noun timios means honor. Theos is the Greek word for God, so it means God honored. And Timothy is mentioned 17 times in Paul's epistles. Two letters are addressed to him, and he is uh, mentioned uh, several times in the book of Acts as a companion of the Apostle Paul on his uh, missionary journeys and afterwards. What we know about Timothy in the second point is that he was a believer. He became a believer, I think, uh, at a young age. And by believer, I mean an Old Testament type of believer. The Scriptures teach us that he was um, taught the Old Testament Scriptures by his grandmother and his mother. His father might have died young because he is never mentioned, but we can't be sure, but he doesn't seem to play a role in any of the uh, events of Timothy's life. But his grandmother and mother were both Old Testament saints. They believed, believed the Scriptures. Second Timothy 1, 4, and 5, Paul is writing in his introduction. He says, "...greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance, uh, when I call to remembrance the unpretentious faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice." and I am persuaded is in you also. It is used again in 1 Timothy 1.5. Now the purpose, uh, and, and I, I want to go back and say something about the word I translated, uh, the word I translated as unpretentious faith. This is a Greek word. It has a prefix, A-N. I don't have it on the screen. It is on hupokritos. What does hypocritas sound like? Hypocrite. Okay, so what the scriptures teach, see, see, the way it's translated usually is a genuine faith or a sincere faith, and you have said, heard me say many times that the word faith or the verb believe are not modified in the scripture. Now, I've never heard anybody bring up these two verses, or actually it's only one verse, uh, where there is a qualifier, this idea of sincere or genuine faith. But when you have the word hypocrite, a hypocrite biblically is someone who says they believe one thing, but they don't. Okay, it's it's not someone who is making a, 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 a genuine statement of their faith, saying, I believe uh, Christ died for my sins. Scripture knows what a person believes. He knows what's in your soul. He knows what you understand. And when you think, when you hear the gospel and you say, I believe that, you're not making a profession of faith in the way that phrase is used. You are believing the gospel. Now, there are people who claim to be Christians, but they have never in their soul believed that Christ died on the cross for their sins. That's believing that if you believe in your soul that Christ died on the cross for your sins, that's not a profession of faith. A profession of faith is when you say that you have believed. But a hypocrite is someone who says it, but he hasn't believed. Okay, so there's no such thing as a faith that is in Christ for salvation, 
that is not genuine. Let me explain that. When you read people like John MacArthur, John Piper, and a number of other who are caught up into the false view of the P in the Calvinist tulip, perseverance of the saints. What that teaches is that the one who is genuinely saved will have works that conform to it. And the works are the evidence that it's genuine faith. They go on to say that you can have a faith in Jesus as your Savior that is not genuine. In other words, it wasn't the gift of God. And then they misquote and misinterpret Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which say, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The demonstrative pronoun, that, is so important because... Because when you read in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that's just back a couple of pages. Let's turn back there. Just hold your place. When you look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, for by grace, that's your first noun. You have been saved through faith. That's your second noun. And that not of yourselves. And you have the phrase, you have been saved, which is a participial phrase, which functions like a noun. Okay, grace and faith are feminine nouns in Greek. They're not gender confused. Demonstrative pronouns have to agree with the noun it's referring to uh, in the same gender. So the that is a neuter. So it has to refer to one of two things, either a neuter noun, and grace is not neuter, faith is not neuter, uh, the participle saved, because a participle is a, is a verbal adjective, and that means it has both verbal, verbal concept, verbal designations, and uh, noun designations. So, for example, in, as a participle, it will, have, it will also have gender, and it's, it's masculine. So if you have a n- neuter demonstrative pronoun, it has to be referring to a feminine noun. Well, you have three, two, two nouns and one, um, one participle that is, that is a nominal participle. None of them are feminine. But what happens is the, the Calvinists come along and say that that refers to the faith, that the faith is, faith is the gift of God. Well, no, you can't say that grammatically. But when you have a collection of things, and they are different, and they're nouns, and they have different genders, then the demonstrative pronoun in Greek will always go to being a neuter, because it's referring to some nouns that are masculine and some nouns that are feminine, and mountain, and and so you can't refer to it as one or the other because you want to include the whole group. So it's referred to by a um, a neuter demonstrative pronoun. And that's what you have here. So it's referring to the whole phrase, the by grace through faith salvation that we have. That is the gift of God. The whole package that God has provided a salvation for us in Jesus Christ, 
that is by grace through faith. That is what it's referring to. That whole package is not of works, lest any man should boast. So when we when we look at people and we think about uh, this idea of using genuine faith or sincere faith or whatever, the way it is used in this theological argument is that there are those who have a faith in Christ who died for their sins, but it isn't a saving faith because it wasn't given by God. Now, what's their example for that? Well, since we're on this rabbit trail, let's turn back to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. At the end of John chapter 2, Jesus, this is his first Passover in Jerusalem, goes to Jerusalem for Passover, and he goes to the temple. And in the temple, he sees the money changers, and he puts together a whip of cords. He puts together a whip, and he flagellates them. He is whipping them. He is turning over these massive tables that are filled with heavy objects, their their money as well as other things, and he is driving all of their sheep and oxen out of the temple. This is not Jesus meek and mild. He is cleansing the temple is what he is doing. And um, then uh, he... People want to listen to him, and so they do. And uh, as he goes through and he's speaking in the temple, and then skip down to verse 23, he says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. The verb is pistuo, which is the normal verb for faith, pistos being the noun. And then it's followed by a preposition, ace, plus the noun, and in this case, his name. So that's the phrase that's used all through the Gospel of John. As many as believed in his name, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. It is believing in the name, all that Jesus is, all that he said he was and did. So John MacArthur, John Piper, and a number of others that I have read say this was not a saving faith. They just ignore the fact that the phrase that's used here is used many, many times in the Gospel of John to express that which a person must do to be to have eternal life. And there's nothing in this story to indicate that, that these people had a diluted faith, they had a misdirected faith or anything else. It says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs. And I had a professor at seminary said, well, they had a faith based on signs, and so it was a weak faith. It wasn't an adequate saving faith. And the response is, well, in John 20, 30 and 31, John writes, these are written. If you look at verse 30, it says that Jesus did many other signs other than the ones written in these, this book. But these are written. These what? These signs. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So according to MacArthur and Piper and a number of other uh, uh, of those who believe in Lordship salvation, 
a faith based on signs is inadequate. Well, that means we just need to get our razor blade out and take the gospel of John out of the New Testament because John is writing so that you will see the signs because they indicate who Jesus is. That's his calling card. That's his credentials. He's demonstrating that he is God and he is the one who was sent to be the Messiah. And so if you understand that, and believe in his name, you will have everlasting life. That's what the purpose of the gospel of John is. So the reason I do that is simply because as we look at these this this these passages about Timothy that talk about the fact that there is this uh, sincere faith, twice it's used, 1 Timothy 1.5, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Now, is that faith for salvation or faith for spiritual growth? That's faith for spiritual growth. This is, that's not a, a phase one salvation. It's not a justification passage. And then in 2 Timothy, Paul writes, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. Again, he's not talking about his saving faith. He's talking about the faith that produced his spiritual growth. But people will say, see, you have to have a genuine faith. And the word that is uh, translated in both of these passages is as a genuine faith or sincere faith is a word that literally means without play acting. It was the word for a someone who would be called a hypocrites, where he is performing something that he does not believe. That's what a hypocrite is. So uh, that's what the problem is, is that the, these Lordship Salvation people say you can have a faith in Jesus. It's not genuine because it didn't come from God. And the only way you know if it came from God, and then they go and they mis, misuse and misinterpret James 2 to say that, see, a faith that is without works is dead. It's non-existent. No, a non-existent, dead faith is not a non-existent faith. For something to be dead, it had to once be alive. And so this is a useless faith, a faith that is not doing or not acting upon that which it claims to believe. And it isn't talking about saving faith there anyway. It is talking about the faith that is necessary uh, to grow and mature and to handle the tests of life. That's what James 2 is all about in in context, because James has already told them that they have received uh, the word Im, uh, embedded in their lives. They are already saved. That's back in chapter 1. So I just wanted to address that in case that is a question that comes to somebody's mind. Uh, we have to understand what the Scriptures say uh, say clearly. There are six uses of uh, of that word uh, that's translated uh, uh, sincere on 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 hypocrites and in the other passages, it's always modifying love, and it's always in a context of the exercise of Christian love, of biblical love. So it's it's only in these two places where it's talking about modifies faith, and in those passages, it's not talking about justifying faith. It's talking about sanctifying faith or spiritual faith. 
2 Timothy 3.14, Paul writes to Timothy, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood. Who did he learn them from? He learned them from his grandmother and his mother. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. So I, I believe that from, from the time he was little, he probably had an understanding of Old Testament salvation. It says, from childhood you uh, knew these things. You've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Now remember, when he writes Second Timothy, there's only probably a half a dozen of the New Testament books that have been written. So when he says you knew the Holy Scriptures, Timothy would have had no knowledge of anything uh, written when he was a child, which was probably, oh, let me see here. He was a child probably during the time of Jesus' ministry. So when he's a child, the only Scriptures that he had were the Old Testament. So the it, Paul is saying they made him wise to salvation. So I would suggest that it's very likely that he, like his mother and his grandmother, were Old Testament believers in that sense. And just like many who were called devout men who went to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in uh, A.D. 33, that they heard Peter's message and they trusted in Yeshua as their Messiah. But they were already saved in an Old Testament sense because they're called devout men. So I I think uh, Timothy was probably that way. But if not, then he was saved by Paul when Paul came, or at least he heard the gospel of Jesus and trusted in Jesus as his Savior when Paul came. So on his first journey, Paul uh, went to uh, first he went to Crete, and then they went up. He was accompanied by Barnabas, and they went up to uh, Antioch, and then to Lystra, uh, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And when he came there, and Acts 16 records their second journey. So he's on the second journey here. And he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there. Notice how he calls him a disciple. That's because on the first journey was when he learned Jesus was the Messiah, and he trusted in him. So Paul left. He went back to Antioch in Syria and reported there, and he goes down to Jerusalem, comes back, and then goes on his second missionary journey. So when he comes back, Timothy has grown spiritually. He's a positive, active young man in the new church that Paul planted the first time he was there. And so when he comes back, he sees Timothy is growing. He's referred to by Luke as a disciple. And he's the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. Now, according to the rabbis, Jewishness is passed on through the mother. There's some speculation that that changed because of, um, uh, be, because of Mary. Because what they're doing is they're saying, well, Mary, they, they rejected the virgin birth, and uh, so that it would come through, through Mary, but she was a prostitute and an immoral woman, and there was some a Roman soldier who she had an affair with, and that's what, why she got pregnant. Uh, that's their story. But in the Bible, in the genealogies of the Bible, it's always tra- lineage is always traced through the man. It's always traced through the male. And so because his father was Greek and not a Jew, 
he was not uh, circumcised, and that comes out eventually. Uh, so he's the son of a Jewish woman who believed, and his, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. So they're, they're, they're recognizing that this young, probably 20 to 25-year-old man is, um, is doing well. He is growing, he is maturing, and he's well spoken of. Now, in, in Jewish culture, you were a young man from the time that you were bar mitzvahed at the age of 13 until you were 40. After you were 40, you were a man. You were not a, an old man yet. You were a man, but you're a young man until you're 40. And so when Paul uh, wrote in First Timothy, don't let people look down on your youth, that's about 65. So if, if uh, uh, Timothy's not yet 40 by 65, then by the time he goes at this time, he's, Timothy would be between 20 and 25 years of age uh, at the most. So uh, because he has a good reputation in the, in the church there, Paul wanted to t- take him along. He had taken Mark, and Mark had been a failure. He couldn't uh, hang in there. And so he sees something in Timothy, and he t- wants to take him along and personally mentor our disciple Timothy. Uh, and he had him circumcised because his father was Greek. He was not circumcised according to the law. And Paul does this not because it has salvific value, not because it's going to make him more spiritual, but because if Timothy is, is, Timothy is known to be Jewish through his mother. And so this would be a problem ministering in a Jewish community if he were not circumcised. Now, circumcision has, comes from two sources. The one source is the Mosaic Law, where it is mandated and, and the uh, ritual is prescribed in the Mosaic Law. That's the problem in Galatians, because Galatians are saying that you are going to be saved also by the works of the law, and you're going to be sanctified also by the works of the law. That's why Paul writes in Galatians 2.16 uh, that we are not justified by the works of the law, but by uh, faith in Christ. Okay, so they're trying to make circumcision from the Mosaic law the requ- uh, an additional requirement for salvation. But circumcision was originally the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, and it was mandated for every Jew to be Jewish male to be circumcised because that was the sign of being a Jew and being in the Abrahamic covenant. So for Paul's reasoning from Galatians, it's wrong to be circumcised on the basis of the Mosaic covenant that this is a sign of salvation or spirituality or uh, anything like that. But he does say it is necessary if you are a Jewish male because of the Abrahamic covenant. <coughs> a lot of people get get confused on some of those particular uh, particular issues. So Jews are Jewish believers, Messianic Jews, Jewish believers in Yeshua as Mashiach are both Abraham's spiritual and physical seed. They're physical descendants of Abraham. So every Jew is still under the Abrahamic covenant. Every Jew is still, Jewish male is still required to be, be circumcised, but that's not a ritual that, that saves. And um, 
And so they're also, if they are a believer in Christ, they are part of Abraham's spiritual descendants, his spiritual seed. So when Paul comes along here, uh, Paul took him under his wing, um, refers to him later as a true son in the faith in the opening uh, salutation in 1 Timothy, and then later on calls him Son Timothy. So he is um, very close to Timothy. Timothy is the one that really becomes his, his sort of his right hand. Uh, fourth thing we see is that when Paul decided to take Timothy with him, he had him circumcised. I've already covered most of this, so it wouldn't hinder his journey at all. Uh, fifth point, uh, through his early 20s, Timothy was well spoken of by the other men in Lystra. So he became Paul's companion and assistant on this second missionary journey. Paul saw something in Timothy that he wished to um, really pour into to build, and that and Timothy, Timothy continued throughout his life to be very, very faithful. Whereas many others, when we read at the end of Second Timothy, many others deserted, deserted Paul. So we see under point six that Timothy was with Paul when he traveled into Europe following the Macedonian vision. This is when in the second missionary journey, and I have a map coming up, in the second missionary journey, he has a vision. He's taken, uh, the Holy Spirit prevented him from going to the northeast, to Bithynia, or from going into Asia, and they had to, and he's vectoring them uh, straight up toward uh, Greece. And so they come to the shore and... Um, he has a vision at night to come over to Troas, and uh, Luke is traveling with them because if you read the text, if you're reading through Acts, you'll notice that sometimes we did this, we did that, it's we or us, and then all of a sudden, it's not a we anymore, it's they. Well, when it's we, Luke is, is with them. When it's they, Luke isn't with them. So he is, uh, this is clearly, uh, uh, you have Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke. Uh, traveling to traveling together, and they will cross over uh, the Aegean and they will come to Macedonia. So when they uh, went and there they will go to Philippi. So he's writing to the Philippians here. They know Timothy. Timothy was with them on his first visit. Timothy has stayed for a little while, I think. Uh, when Paul left to go to Thessalonica, Timothy's not mentioned. And so uh, many people assume that he left Timothy. He's, in, he's only in Thessalonica for a couple of months, and then he goes to Berea, and then Timothy is mentioned again when they come to Berea. So here's the map, and this is a second missionary journey to orient you. This is Israel down here. This is the uh, uh, eastern Mediterranean. This whole area is called the Levant. This is Syria. And then as you come up here, you're, this whole area is modern Turkey. And Tarsus, which is where Paul's originally from, is here in Cilicia. And so Antioch is just here on the sort of the northwest Syria on the coast, and that's where the home church is that sends Barnabas and, uh, Barnabas and Paul out. The first missionary journey, they go to Cyprus. Then they went up to Pamphylia. Uh, to Perga, and then north up here to uh, Antioch, all of which is in the green area, which is Galatia. And then they came to Lystra, Iconium, and Derby. That was on the first journey. 
Second journey, he comes back. He goes by land from Antioch to Tarsus and then to Derby, Lystra, and Iconium. That's when he connects with Timothy again and takes him uh, on their journey. And so they leave there, and they head this way. He wants to go to Ephesus into Asia, but the Holy Spirit prevents him. So he thinks, well, I'll go up into either northern Galatia or Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit says, mm, no. And so they come up this way, and they come to Troas. They cross over, and here's Philippi. And so uh, they, they uh, after the Macedonian vision, we read in Acts seventeen fourteen that immediately the brethren sent Paul away, uh, to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. Okay, this is talking about what happens after they after they leave uh, Philippi. Um, so this this is the area we're talking about. In this is Macedonia down to this river, and then we're down into Achaia. So this is uh, Philippi. You take the I believe this is the Ignatian Way, the highway. It's still there. You can still see it. Um, down to Amphipolis, Apollonia, and across westerly to Thessalonica. There two months, and they go to Berea. So that helps you to understand what we're talking about. Then they're going to be taken. That's the verses I just quoted. They immediately, the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. Paul heads south. He's headed down to Athens. And eventually, this is the eighth point, Timothy and Silas will eventually join Paul in Corinth. That's in Acts 18.5. Next, he appears with Paul in Ephesus on his third journey in Acts 19.22. And then Paul sends Erastus and Timothy to Macedonia ahead of himself. So he's back in Macedonia which is where Philippi is. So again, he has connections with the Philippians. Throughout all of this, in the uh, various epistles, he is described by Paul as a fellow worker in Romans 16.21 and 1 Thessalonians 3.2. He's described as a brother in 2 Corinthians 1.1, Colossians 1.1, and 1 Thessalonians 3.2. He is referred to as a bondservant or a slave in Philippians 1.1. He's referred to as a beloved and faithful child in the Lord in 1 Corinthians 4.17. He's referred to as as son in 1 Timothy 1.2, 2 Timothy 1.2, and 1 Timothy 1.18. He's co-equal in the Lord's work in 1 Corinthians 16.10 and 1 Thess 2. This is tremendous. Everything that Paul says about Timothy are very, very positive. When he writes 2 Timothy, he writes 2 Timothy to tell Timothy that he's got to command certain men who are causing trouble in the church to quit teaching heresy and start teaching the truth. He has to deal with certain gender role problems in uh, Ephesus, uh, he's pastor in Ephesus by this time, and uh, he tells the men that they have to come together and pray. They're the leaders in the church. They have to man up and be spiritual leaders in the church, and he tells the women that they have to quit trying to man up, and they need to function in the role of women in the church, and women are not to teach or have authority over men. That is in the second chapter. In the third chapter, he tells Timothy to appoint uh, leaders in the church, to appoint pastors, to appoint deacons, 
Uh, he is to teach the scriptures. He's to proclaim the word of God and guarding that which God has entrusted to him in terms of the scripture. And so a, then he, these, this Second Timothy are the final things that, that uh, he's being uh, uh, told to do. So um, Philippians, or excuse me, First Timothy, not Second Timothy. I got, I got confused there. So in Philippians 2.19, he says, But I trust in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also uh, may be encouraged when I know your state. So the word that's translated trust is the word hope. Uh, Hope comes very close to faith. Faith, hope, and love, remember, are the three that are mentioned at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. Faith is belief, a conviction, confidence in the truth of something. Hope is a confident expectation based on faith. So it here it is, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state, when I know what's going on there. So he expects Timothy to go there shortly and then uh, he will, Timothy will send him a report on what's going on in, in Philippi. So he trusts Timothy. And he's going to go on and say that the reason I, I need to hear from you is that I may be encouraged. Now, this isn't the normal word for encouragement either. It's EU, which means a good thing. That's a prefix meaning something good, like a eulogy is saying good words, logos plus EU. EU is something good about sukeo from suke, meaning soul. So it's it's something that is going to uh, give you a good soul. It's going to give you an uplift, make you happy. You, you want to hear good news. And so it's uh, it's having a cheerful spirit. That's the idea there. So he's, he wants to send Timothy shortly uh, so that he'll hear a good report. What is going on here is that in um, in these verses... Maybe, did I leave some? No, I didn't. So we come to these next three verses, and these need to be understood together. Why does he want to send Timothy? We, and this is why we get into this context. Timothy's the third example. What, is he, what does Paul say? He says, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for you. Why does he use that word like-minded? Well, if you look back in the chapter... Look back up to Philippians uh, 1, verse 2. What you will discover is that he wants the Philippians to be like-minded. And he defines what like-mindedness is. He says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, one accord of one mind. What does it mean to be like-minded? You have the same love for one another. You're one accord. You're thinking alike. Let nothing be done by selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So that's what he's talking about. He wants someone like that, and he's not finding them. I want somebody who's like-minded because they'll sincerely, they'll truly care for you. This is another word translated sincerely from what we looked at earlier. They'll truly care for your for your state, watch over you. He's, he'll be a good shepherd, good pastor. For all seek their own. All these people that hung around Paul, there are a lot of people who are hangers-on. 
Uh, you, especially if you go to big churches, you're going to find that there's all kinds of groupies that hang around pastors that have a big name, but they don't hang in there when they're, they're, they're not necessarily growing spiritually. They're just there for the, uh, for the buzz from being around somebody that's well known. And he says, I, 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 they're just seeking their own, not the things that are of Christ Jesus. See, if you're a growing believer, your focus is on what do I do to serve the Lord. It's not on what do I do uh, in order to fulfill my, my bucket list. It's what do I do to serve the Lord. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. That is typical of a sin nature control because it's all about me. It's not about what the Lord wants. Verse 22 he says, but you know his proven character. We went through everything. He was there when uh, Paul went there the first time. He went back later on. Uh, they know Timothy. They trust Timothy. You know his proven character that as a son with his father, he served me with me in the gospel. So Paul has this very, very close filial relationship with the apostle Paul. So why does Paul say all these things about Timothy? Because this has been his focal point from the beginning of this section. I just went over the section in Philippians 2, 2 through 4, that we're to be all to be like-minded. We're not to be motivated by selfish ambition, what we want to get out of life, what I want to do in this life. We're to be motivated by serving the Lord. God bought us with the price to serve him. He's given us a mission. And then verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests. So there's nothing wrong with taking care of yourself. But don't be, it's not all about taking care of yourself. Don't look out just for your own interests. Look out for the interests of others as well. And then he gives the example from Jesus Christ. Have this mindset, this mental attitude. Again, using the same word in the Greek that it uses again and again whenever you read of the same mind, um, same, same mindset. It's always the same word in the Greek. Christian life is a life related to thinking. He said, let this mental attitude be in you which was in Christ, although he eternally existed with the identical essence of God, he did not think equality with God a thing to be selfishly grasped after. This is my translation. But willingly limited himself by receiving the essence of a servant or a slave and coming in the likeness of man. Why? To serve us, Jesus said, I came to seek and to serve that which is lost. And then Philippians two fourteen through 16. He talks about the individual believers there in Philippi, and he says, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We don't shine as lights in the world if we're self-centered, if we're self-absorbed, because every other person on the planet is self-absorbed. Every other person in HEB is self-absorbed. Every other person in Costco is self-absorbed. Every other person on the highway is self-absorbed. But we are not to be. We are to be different. We are here uh, to serve the Lord. So that causes us to be seen as different. We shine as lights in the world. And trust me, people look at us. If you're a believer and they know it, they watch us. You are observed. I'll never forget when I started 
um, becoming involved with uh, and being good friends with some of my unsaved Jewish friends, that one of the men who helped me start the church introduced me to several of them uh, many, many years ago now. But he said to me, he said, they've all heard the gospel, but they're watching you, and they're watching me, and we are a visible testimony. It's not about telling people the words of the gospel. It's about how you live. That's what they're watching. Because many of them can can repeat the words of the gospel better than you can. They know it. They've heard it 575 times, and you probably have too because you're here all the time. But they've heard it a lot. They know exactly what the gospel is. They just don't believe it. So it's not about giving them those words. It's about living consistently before them. And that's part of what it means to shine as lights in the world. And you do it by holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. So this is where we are. And we come through our example of Timothy, and next time we'll look at uh, Epaphroditus, who they thought would die. He was in verse 27, for indeed he was sick almost unto death. So we'll deal a little bit with what the Bible teaches about God's plan for sickness and God's plan for uh, suffering through illness and God's plan for healing or not, whatever the case may be. So we'll touch on that when we come back next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study about Timothy and see what a wonderful young man he was and how he grew to maturity. Uh, He was not perfect. He had uh, some flaws here and there. He needed to be strengthened and encouraged, as we all do, uh, by you and by your word. But Paul gave him uh, tremendous responsibilities, and from all that we know, Timothy was faithful until death. He ran his race. And whereas many others who were uh, along for the ride with Paul fell by the wayside and they couldn't handle it, And sadly, we see that with many people we have known over the years, that they, uh, for a while, they ran a good race, but then they fell by the wayside. So, Father, we pray that we might be strengthened, that we might continue to press on to spiritual maturity, and that you might be glorified in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.